0: So reading Romans 1 verses 1 to 7, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness, by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ, to all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints. Grace to you. And peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. This morning, I hope that you will keep your Bibles open
1: with me to Romans. And if you don't have a Bible, there are some Bibles near you that you can find. Feel free to uh, turn and follow along with us as we begin our time in the Gospel of in Romans. The uh, title of the sermon series is the, the Power of God for Salvation. Do you hear that? What we're about to turn to, what we're opening up in in this letter of Romans is the power of God for salvation. I know you knew that. A lot of you know that. You've known it for a long time. If that's new to you, I'm so glad that that word has come to your ears this morning. But for some, you're like, yeah, I know that. Yeah, I know. Listen again. We are going to give attention in these days through the power of God for the salvation of your soul and my soul. That is a worthy endeavor. kids. This is what the kids pay attention to down the hall in, in Crosspoint Kids. This is what we, we pray about. This is what we pray for in praying for global, our global mission partners. That, 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 that proclamation of the power of God for salvation would reach to the ends of the earth and the highways and byways. Of Brevard County right where we are. Let's give attention for the next three months. I hope you'll remain in Romans in your homes and in your break rooms as you walk your dog in the morning. Turn on the dwell app and listen to Romans in many times at many places as a church together over the course of the coming months. I pray that we will take hold of this gift of God to us in his word, the power of God for salvation. We have this prayer, and I'm going to literally be praying this, and I hope that you'll join in praying with the elders this prayer. Our prayer for this series is that over the coming years, the Lord would build for us a foundation for our faith in the power of God for salvation. Now, I'll be honest, I, I really struggled with the writing of that prayer uh, because like Does God need to build a foundation for the faith? I mean, he's already built the foundation for our faith. Why why do I pray that God would build a foundation for our faith when it's already been built in Christ? He is the foundation and the cornerstone of our faith. But really what I'm praying is that he would build that foundation in us, that we we would know where to stand, how to stand on that foundation, that he would unite us, as, as Romans is very careful to say, by grace, through faith to that foundation, that we would stand on a foundation that is there. And pray that during the course of this time. And so I figure, why don't we start there? When we start with a prayer that God would, would build this in us. Heavenly Father, this is your word. The whole thing from beginning to end. It's your inspired word. This is your servant. This is your church. These are your called-out ones. This is your gathering. We've been called to worship. It's all to your glory and by your grace, and it's for the good of your church. And so, God, we are dependent upon you in, in every single respect, from beginning to end and everything all the way through. God, we ask that you would work according to your wisdom and will And that we would find ourselves praying all the more as we're informed by your word, all the more in concert with your purposes by your word to be planted in this people. And Lord, then we would see miracle happen, the the very transformation of human lives. Everyone here, whether we are nurturing an old faith or discovering the new gift of faith, Lord, would you do that miracle in the midst of the church, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Here we are in Romans. It's titled Romans. Shocker, because it's to the church in Rome. We read that just a few moments ago, right? If you glance ahead to verse 7, this is why we need to look. I hope that you will maybe just find an app on your phone and follow, follow along that Verse 7 says, to all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints. And then he prays this prayer, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We know that there's a church in Rome. We know that they're loved by God and they're called to be saints. But we know very little about the founding of that church in this city called Rome. We can be confident that it was not planted by the Apostle Paul who wrote the letter That's before us today. We can be confident it wasn't planted by Paul, though he planted so many of the Gentile churches. Now, there are a couple things that we do know, and honestly, I think this leads us to some pretty solid conclusions. We know that there were visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, at Pentecost in Acts chapter two, shortly after the resurrection of Jesus and the conversion of many thousands on that day. We know that happened. We know that there is a 4th, 7th century commentary on Romans, and in that commentary it says this, the Romans had embraced the faith of Christ, albeit according to the Jewish rites, although they had no sign of mighty works, nor any of the apostles. So he's saying, this church in Rome wasn't actually directly founded by any of the apostles but rather by word that came from those who were converted. This church in Rome appears to have been founded by these visitors to Jerusalem at Pentecost who were already faithful. They were already faithful to the Hebrew Scriptures. And then when they were confronted by the gospel of Jesus Christ, when Peter made that call to faith, they repented and were baptized in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of their sins and received the gift of the Holy Spirit. They were changed, and it would seem that they returned to Rome, and they went proclaiming that good news. Having confessed faith in Jesus, they returned to Rome, and sharing this gospel with others, they began to walk in faith in a body together. This is called the church. This is how churches are planted. This letter then is an apostle's effort to bring some theological clarity and a unified foundation. What are we praying for? I'm praying for some theological clarity and some unified foundation that the whole of the church, both Jew and Gentile, would stand on the power of God for salvation. This is Paul's aim in this letter, and I pray that he would do that still today that the Lord would still do that today by this message. Here's Romans eight one eight. We didn't read this this morning, but the passage continues. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. How do you like that? How would you like to be a church whose faith is proclaimed in all the world? Paul is often in prayer, thanksgiving for the church in Rome. They're faithful in the face of adversity. They're faithful in the face of persecution. They've held tight to the hope that they have in Christ. And there's news of that faith circulating in the region and in the world. I think it's instructive for us that when Paul considered what is needed, and and, and when we look at this church, we know that they're already faithful. Now, I think that what would happen is if, if some modern preacher would hear about a faithful church, that they would come in with a strategy, here's how to make a bunch of other churches just like you. What's needed is for you to work harder, faithful church, to make more of your church. I've heard how great you are, and the whole world knows how great you are. Everybody should be like Rome. No, that's not the message of Paul. What he considered would be instructive for the church that is already faithful and well-known in the whole world in the face of adversity and tensions, both within and without, what's needful for the church was stand confident in the gospel. Not something that they are to do. Not a great strategy for multiplication. What is needed is to stand firm in the gospel for it. The good news of Jesus Christ is the power of God for salvation for everyone who believes. Amen. Now, while we know little about this early Roman church, we know a great deal about the person who wrote this letter. So we should spend some time. Let's talk about Paul for a minute. It's the first word in the book, after all. You can see it there. Paul, verse one, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. We know three things about Paul that he tells us right at the front of this letter. Romans is written by Paul, but the first thing that he really tells us in this very first verse is the message and the messenger belong to Jesus and are about Jesus. It's by Paul, but it's about Jesus and it's to the glory of Jesus. Paul presses the point home with three statements about himself. If you're taking notes, and kiddos, if you're following along, taking some notes, you would you would note these things. The first is that he's a servant. What do we know about Paul? He's a servant. This is not Paul's letter, nor Paul's gospel. Paul writes as one who is a servant. Now, when we hear the word servant, we might be inclined to hear the wrong sort of idea. It's like, Paul's just saying, you know, I'm just a humble sort of guy. This is not a statement about the character of Paul, first of all. This is a statement about Paul's position in the universe, where he is situated in 1 Corinthians 7.23. Great verse to write down in the margin there. 1 Corinthians 7.23. You were bought with a price. Do not become bondservants of men. That's what Paul means by saying Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus. He's been purchased. He belongs to someone. He occupies a position in the universe, and that position is that of purchased one. He's been bought, and he is owned. Now, I need to step aside for just one second and and point to something I think you will find helpful over the coming months. I want to to point us to John Piper's sermon series, The Greatest Letter Ever Written. Super helpful. Pastor John Piper, uh, a former pastor at Bethlehem Baptist in, in Minnesota, he preached a series through the, uh, through the letter of Romans and, and rightly calls it The great, Greatest Sermon Ever. I'm going to reference those quite often, and I would point you toward that sermon series. It's very helpful. In that series, he says this, Here, in this history-making letter, we are not dealing with a man and his genius. We are dealing with a man and his owner, and his ruler, and his God. Paul is writing as a servant of God, as one who has been bought and owned, whose pen moves at the behest of a master. That's a First thing that Paul wants you to know at the front about him is he occupies a servant's seat. He is not the Lord. But here's the thing. As we listen to Paul's words, it's clear that he loves his Lord. It's clear that he loves Jesus the Christ. It's by the Lord Jesus Christ that he has been set free from his slavery to sin and death. What a beautiful seat to occupy as a servant of a gracious, redeeming master like that. That's what Paul wants you to know. Paul stands in a long line of servants, Abraham, Moses, David, the prophets, all of these saints of the scriptures have spoken on behalf of a Lord, right? They're not the scripture writers. They're servants, speaking on behalf of a master, not because they're great religious men. It's because they're servants of a Lord. Paul is placing himself in this long line of those who speak as a servant of the Lord. And so he's acknowledging Jesus as the Lord of all. It's the Lord of all those who speak in the name of the Lord. Paul's writing this letter as a servant of Jesus. What we find in this letter is not his idea, it's not his labor, and it's not by his authority. Have I said it? Do we got it? Do you understand what we're going to hear in the coming days? A servant of God. And so he's also a servant of gospel truth. That's the second thing he tells you about himself. He says he's called to be an apostle. This is what it means to be an apostle. The word means a sent one. He has been commissioned by the Lord himself. He's been sent, called to be an apostle. Here's Galatians chapter one, verses 11 and 12. Here's what he says about his commissioning. For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ, his Master, his Lord, under whom he is servant, he has been sent. I encourage you to read Acts chapter 9. Acts chapter 9 is a fuller account of what happened when Paul was specifically commissioned and converted by this Master. Paul is not merely a church missionary, though he was that. He was sent out from Antioch. But that's not where his first call came. He's not merely identified as a local church planter, but rather he is identified as one who is sent in the name of the Lord. He was called by the Lord, and having witnessed the resurrection of the Lord, with his own eyes, he was sent as an apostle to testify about the gospel. So what are we going to hear? We're going to hear the words of a servant who is under a master and one who has been sent by that master with news for us to hear. We're told a third thing about Paul. He says, I'm a servant. I'm called. And third, I'm set apart for the gospel of God. There are many valid interests in a person's life to which they might dedicate themselves. Elsewhere, the Apostle Paul calls these other interests civilian pursuits. But in 2 Timothy 2.4, he says, but no soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since his aim is ple- to please the one who enlisted him. I have a, I have a master because I'm a servant. I'm an apostle because I was sent. I've been set apart For a purpose. And everything else is a civilian pursuit. I'm a soldier who's been sent for a purpose. And that purpose is to proclaim the gospel of God. Paul's an enlisted man set apart for a specific mission. And so he's a servant with a singular interest. You might say Paul's been made captive by a call to proclaim the gospel. I've mentioned John Piper who's helpful. There's also another man, his name is John Murray. He wrote a commentary on Romans. He's a mid-20th century theologian, professor at Princeton Seminary, wound up being a founding professor at Westminster Theological Seminary. I commend his commentary as well to you. You'll hear a good bit of it in the coming weeks. Here's what John Murray says about this idea of being set apart. He says, all bonds of interest and attachment alien to the promotion of the gospel, had been rent asunder. All alien attachments rent asunder. Man, I love the sound of that. I wish wish that made sense of me. I wish that sounded like something that could be said of us. See, Paul is a servant. He's called, he's set apart. And by all three of these statements, he's not trying to tell you amazing things about himself. He's trying to tell you something about God and his gospel. Not, these aren't three amazing statements about Paul, but by these three statements, he's saying Paul is the author of Romans. He, he wrote it, but the whole point of the introduction is to say this is not my book. It's not mine. It's not my letter, and it's certainly not my gospel. Romans is written by Paul. But the message and the messenger belong to Jesus. And the message and the messenger are all about Jesus. I have to say that I am personally challenged by verse one, like the one that you normally skip and read really quickly, you know? But this has been a difficult verse for me. I want to stop here, and I want to stop with you. I call you. Come with me. Stop here for a moment. Do I belong to the Lord? Do I know know what it is to be be purchased by him? Just how entangled have I become in civilian pursuits? Am, Am I a man with a singular interest? Do I live to make him known? I hope you feel the gravity of that reality this morning. It's beautiful. It's weighty, but it's beautiful. Look at the last words of verse one. For the gospel of God, set apart for the gospel of God. This is huge. It's a huge clue to us for the rest of the book. This is the gospel of God. If there's anything we should See from Paul's first three statements is that this is God's gospel, not Paul's gospel, this is God's gospel. That, that's why he's he's under it, that's why he's a servant of it. That's why he's sent by the master of that good news and set apart for it. Later in Romans 11.36, you you'll notice there's a verse that goes with each one of these because he unpacks these three ideas over and over again. But in Romans eleven thirty six, he says. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. The gospel of God. There's an already powerful implication for us today. I I hear this statement or some variation thereof all the time. All the time. I hear sentences like, that's not who God is to me. That's because what you're describing is your God. You're describing your good news. You're describing your gospel. But Paul says, I don't get to do that. Paul had an idea of what a gospel would be as well, and he killed people he believed it so strongly. Read Acts. I sent you to it earlier. And then a master came and said, that's your gospel, Paul. It's not your Lord's gospel. <laughs> the idea that we have a right to say that's not who God is to me. People make grand statements about God's character. What, this is what God's love is like or how God would have us live or, and yet have made little effort to, or no effort even to listen to God's word in scriptures. You see, we do know what God's love is like. We do know how God would have us live. But we have to discover and then repeat it, not make it up. We just don't get to do that. This is God's gospel. God has been making himself known for millennia. He's used many servants to speak many words. And if we want to know who God is and what is his good news, we don't get to make it up for our own minds or from cultural presumptions. That would be the culture's gospel. And every culture has a sense of what would be good news to them. And the more we participate in it, the more it will feel like good news. But it's just feeling like good news. It's not the good news of the Master, God, our Creator. And we have to listen. This is God's gospel, and this is the Lord's good news. It's why I commission you to open your scriptures. It's why I send you home with the Word. It's, It's not my gospel either. I hope I'm faithful to it, just as Paul is. But it doesn't belong to me. It belongs to the master who's given you those words as well. The second thing that we see as we look at verse 2 verse 2 says, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the holy scriptures. The second thing we see is this is not a new gospel. It's not a new gospel at all. It's been promised beforehand. It's come before Paul's saying these words and recording them for Rome and has been saying them among the churches, but there is a word that came before Paul's announcement of this gospel. Ray Ortland says this, your gospel is old. You have been given something real and solid in the midst of my paper-thin anti-historical pop culture, but this gospel is old. And you know, I just want to stop there, something I've been thinking a lot about lately, and, and probably you have too, because we're just sort of being inundated and confronted with it. You see, I, I'm a technological early adopter. Many of you know that about me. I love tech. Man, when Apple is having their big announcements and stuff, like I'm sitting on my back porch, my feet up, and popcorn, you know? I'm stoked. I'm excited. And I have been as long as I knew technology existed. All right, I'm a technological early adopter. I downloaded Instagram in 2010. Yes, the internet existed in 2010. It was great, right? That was the year Instagram came out. I honestly think I was probably within the first couple thousand accounts on Instagram. I was on Twitter when it still had 140 characters. All right? I, actually, I, I still actually own a website domain that basically says 140, thinking, man, I'm going to capitalize on this." All right? Surely people are going to want to buy my domain name that refers to Twitter's 140 characters. Because did you know that text messages were how you got Twitter for a long, long time? Every single tweet was sent to your phone, and your phone could only handle 120 characters. And so they had to limit it to that. I'm out. I've been around technology for a little while, but one thing that has me exhausted today by technology, just 13 years later, and specifically this whole Instagram sort of thing, is it seems that right now is the only thing that matters. It seems that that this moment is the only moment that has any value at all, And it seems that technology, and specifically the, this sort of social media side of it, is teaching us and, and training us in that idea. Let me give you an example by like considering the life cycle of a TikTok video. Follow with me. For some of you, you're like, why are we even talking about this? Everybody knows this. Let me tell you, kids, not everybody knows this. All right? Someone posts a video on TikTok. And then that video begins to go viral, and a TikTok trend is born. And people start following along with that trend and then enacting that trend themselves and and posting themselves, doing videos that follow along with the music of that trend. It's gone viral. And within a day or two, those original videos on TikTok are then reposted over on Instagram or YouTube Shorts or some other social media site. But if someone, if you tell someone that you saw that video on Instagram or YouTube or someone else, you're too late. You see, you're watching the reposted versions. And if you're watching the reposted versions, TikTok has moved on. And honestly, the world's about to move on past TikTok. And it'll be the place where the videos on some other platform are posted because TikTok is old news and there's some new thing. The trend is passed on TikTok. You're too late. And the internet has gone on to the next great thing. Days, perhaps within even hours. That's how long something is considered valuable or interesting. Now, these are just stupid videos. It's okay. It's kind of fun. But I, I'm watching it. And I'm like, I think I'm being retrained. There's a way that I'm beginning to think about more than just stupid little videos that are kind of fun to watch for a couple minutes. Beginning to think this way about everything. A video might be reborn a few weeks or months later as part of a video montage on YouTube, but then it's just nostalgia weeks later. In this culture, there is something that, that I, in our souls that asks, is there anything of enduring value? Is there anything that is worth more than a? <laughs> 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 is there anything that lasts? Or is everything passing away? Paul suggests that the credibility of the gospel is not that it's trending in Rome. And he says it is. It's trending in the whole world. They're all hearing about the faith in Rome, it's gone viral. But the gospel is so powerful, it's made its way from Jerusalem to Rome in only a matter of years. But the amazing thing about the gospel isn't this. The amazing thing about the gospel is it's not new at all. What Paul has posted to the Romans isn't new. It's ancient. It's gone before. An ancient news long promised. The message that Paul declares can be examined. It can be examined by comparing this claim of gospel fulfillment in Romans in the person and work of Jesus Christ with the claims of the gospel that was promised in all of the scriptures that came before. There is an ancient, many centuries long record of this gospel. And when Paul makes his post, he says, oh, compare it, hold it up. See if it stands in the line of promise. This claim of gospel fulfillment in Romans. This is what Jesus himself did in both his ministry among his disciples as well as following his resurrection. On the Emmaus Road in Luke 24, he says, And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, Jesus interpreted to them all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. He says, I'm not new. What I've done is not a novel idea. It's ancient. It was told of beforehand. Here I am. See, the gospel is promise. It is a guarantee of God and is only as good as God and his word. And it doesn't change day after day, year after year, decade after decade, and for the ages. It is a promise that is unchanging and its value to us is only insofar as we take God at his word and only insofar as God is sure to his word. See, that's that's grace, God being sure to his word and that's faith to take God at his word by grace, through faith. We'll look at this much more detail in Romans chapter 4. We'll look at this idea of being united to the ancient promises and the great fulfillment of Jesus Christ by faith. Again, John Murray writes extant scriptures, the scriptures that were already there, contained the gospel in promise. The subject matter with which the apostle is going to deal is the gospel in fulfillment of that ancient promise, that beforehand word. You see, he says, through the prophets, in the holy scriptures. You see, no one found some sacred text hidden in a golden vase descending on a cloud. The scriptures come through the writings of simple men who have been called and set apart for by God, people who are rightly simply called servants. Second Peter chapter 1 says, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man. But men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. You see, the gospel isn't discovered in some long-forgotten religious treasure box. God made his message known through what he calls jars of clay. Simple servants, otherwise weak and failing men like Paul. And God has made his message known. I I want you to know what is true. Not what is new, but what is true true, what will actually last. If I have been made by an infinite and eternal God, I want to know what is infinite and eternal. I'm distracted by momentary things, but I want to know what is infinite and eternal. You and I were made for such things. Again, there's a, a cutting and powerful challenge for us here. What, I, what am I seeking all day long? What compels me? Sure, if I, if I stepped back from my days on social media, if I, if I didn't check Twitter and Instagram anymore, and, and honestly, I don't. I've stepped back from that really further than I ever thought I, I would. I've moved Instagram and all the others off of the front page of my phone, I don't get the uh, alerts anymore. But I know for myself, I'm constantly reading articles, watching news, listening to podcasts, and I think that part of what has gone wrong with my own soul is I'm distracted. And something tells me you are too. Maybe it's social media, maybe it's news, maybe it's Netflix, I'm not sure, but if you're alive today, you live in an age of distraction, and bless you, Teach us if you've figured out how to walk in this day. But there's a chance that you're distracted. Perhaps what you need is to calm down and sit for a season with some very old news. And it takes longer than a, (laughs) to pay attention to. A news that is long promised. And listen to this word, what it is. The scriptures call it. These scriptures, these writings, this news is called holy. Oh, it's a holy thing. It's a reverent thing. It's something that has substance in itself. I know for myself and my household, we'll be taking these weeks of Romans to slow down, I pray, and listen to words of an ancient servant. We want to hear news of holy things. I have to tell you, I've come to love Paul like the man this servant guy, this, this apostle? It, Paul writes in 10.15, in he says, How are they to preach unless they're sent? And as it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news? It's through this servant's voice alongside of the many other servants of God, Peter and Matthew and Mark and Luke and John, various epistles and letters, that good news has come to me. And their feet, the more that I look at the business that they've written down and their labor as servants of the Lord, they're beautiful. I've come to appreciate them. It's through this servant's voice that I've come to be rescued and made a servant myself. It's good news. It's gospel news. I do pray that we, we'll be able to slow down a little and give attention to the holy things, the ancient things, long dead servants whose hope is in their God, and that we would not be distracted by civilian pursuits. Because there is a gospel. There is a good news in Romans about justification by grace through faith in the power of God for salvation here's the deal. You and I are not just distracted. We aren't just people who make things up from our hearts because we exist in a culture. You and I are sinners. Not just distracted, not just my bad. I'm sorry, I'm kind of like that sometimes. We're sinners against a holy God. And what we need is not a better way to be for a little while to fix our distraction and get some help by somebody else who's figured it out. What you and I need is rescue. We need to be saved. And we need to be reconciled to the holy God. And what Paul comes with is news of that salvation through the person and work, the sacrifice on the cross and the glorious resurrection and new life that is in Jesus Christ who is alive today. And I want you to know this before we close. He is alive today so that salvation is for you today. Will you receive it with faith? And some of you are thinking this is the part where he changed to talking about people who aren't saved. Oh, I am. If you're here and you are a sinner, you know it. But you have not received the grace of Jesus Christ and forgiveness of sins cry out to him in faith. But friends, that is an evangelical word for everyone here, including my own soul. Will I know, will I receive, will I be situated under the grace of Jesus Christ today for the forgiveness of my sin forever, that you and I, church, we together, will be reconciled to our God. Heavenly Father, these are holy things. We just talked about sinners and rebels being reconciled to their maker, their holy, glorious maker. These are holy things. Thank you, God, that you have given us words on mere human tongues to be able to to repeat that sound like good news, sound like ancient, enduring, foundational good news. We pray, Lord, that you would, yes, build faith for us, build, establish in your church a foundation that is laid by the prophets and the apostles, whose cornerstone is Jesus Christ, is the person and the work of God the Son. But Lord, I pray also, and most importantly today, that you would grant faith. Faith to everyone, faith increasing, that we might believe, that we would by your grace, by your word and your spirit, be freed from distraction and give attention to what is infinite and eternal. God, if that would happen, we will be astounded, and yet it's what we expect because you are the miracle-working God. Work this faith, work this salvation, work this grace in this people. Lord, we pray in the name of Jesus, our Redeemer, Amen.